Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jacob Warren. I serve as one of the pastors here at Veritas Church. And if you're new with us, we're really, really glad that you're here this morning. Um, today, we're celebrating baptisms again. That's right. Um, if you're here and you're brand new with us, know that Veritas is a place where it's okay to, to not be okay, um, that we really do mean that. Uh, we believe that, that here in this room are a, gathered a bunch of people who are saying that we need Jesus. Our hope is firmly rooted in him. None of us here in this room have our stuff together. None of us here in this room claim to be perfect. And if you, if you do, um, you've got a competing voice and his name is Jesus. That We're here for him and not you, okay? And so Jesus is whom we've gathered around here this week. And we need to be reminded yet again of the good news of the gospel. That although we are a mess, through Christ we are God's mess. We've seen this again and again and again as we preach through the book of Genesis, and we're going to see it again today. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and meet me in Genesis chapter 30, verse 25. If you don't have a Bible or if you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on the way in, if you don't own a Bible, uh, consider that Bible our gift to you. Um, we love the Bible here. Uh, this past week, uh, uh, Trey, um, he was able to preach for us this past week. And Can we just thank God for plurality of men who preach, who proclaim? Serving us well in that. This past week, we saw that through all of that misplaced identity and misplaced hope and having children or being seen by your spouse and all of that, ultimately, the main character of that story was God and how he was working in and through all of that to show that he is our true source of fulfillment. He's the one who sees, he's the one who hears, and he's the one who meets us with himself. Now, a disclaimer for today, um, when we were putting together uh, how we are to walk through this book of Genesis, today we're going to be walking through 85 verses, and so we're here for it, right? We're Bible people here at Veritas, we're going to go yard in Genesis um, uh, chapter 30 and 31 this morning, we're going to hit the whole of chapter 31, because this is all one story here of Jacob's exodus away from Laban, and so this, this passage today is about a number of things. It's about following the will of God and seeing, experiencing blessing even as we are mistreated by others. But it's also what happens when we try to take the blessing into our own hands. When we try to scheme our way into it and see the chaos that that breeds in our lives. But this story, and through this story, we can learn about conflict. We can learn about broken relationships. We can Learned about boundaries and realizing that you're just not going to see eye to eye with everyone. This story is about getting what we don't deserve, but also seeing the undeserved grace of God provide protection through covenant. And ultimately, this, God, this story is going to show us how God is going to use a really strange story about a stolen idols to show how worthless any other God or idol really is. We can break down this text into three sections, and this is kind of how we'll approach this this morning. One, uh, we'll see God's blessing, God's call, and God's protection. Let's dive into chapter 30, verse 25, and read uh, the first number of verses together. We'll read 25 through 36 together first. The word of God for us this morning reads like this. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, "'Send me away that I may go to my own home and country.'" Give me my wives and my children, for whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given to you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, 
I've learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I'll give it. And Jacob said to him, you yourself know how I've served you, how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turn. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? And he said, what should I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything, for you will do this for me. And I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all of your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb, and the spotted and the speckled among the goats, they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later. When you come to look for my wages with you, everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted as stolen. Laban said, good, let it be as you have said. But that day... Laban, that schemer here, removed all the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black. He put them in charge of his sons and he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Stop right there for a minute. So in verses 37 through 42, for the sake of time, uh, Jacob gets a scheme in his head where he basically gets some sticks, does something to them, and sets them in front of the sheep. And I did a whole bunch of commentary work on it. I still don't know what's going on. I don't know if Jacob knows either. I think it's just kind of like some folktale thing that he does. He thinks he's trying to, take, he's trying to be slick here and get these uh, sheep to be spotted, speckled, and striped, and all of that. But skip down to verse 43. At the end of the day, here's what happens. God moves to bless, and we're told this in verse 43. Thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, male servants, and camels and donkeys. All right. So, now that Jacob's son Joseph is born, Jacob is finally ready to leave and head back home. He's got wives, he's got kids. He's got a family. He's, he's being able to amass a ton of things, and he's now lacking only one thing, wealth. He approaches Laban to ask him if he could leave, but Laban wants to keep Jacob around. Laban sees rightly, and I don't really buy the whole by divination thing. You know, Jacob had this dream that was a life-altering experience, you know, uh, a couple of chapters back when we were preaching through uh, the, 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 the ladder that extends from heaven to earth where Jacob meets God at this place that he ultimately calls Bethel. And it's hard for me to believe that Jacob never shared that story with Laban about receiving the promises of God, receiving the blessings of God. Jacob's a guy that, you know, he's slick and he's going to try to trick you, but he's going to voice something if he thinks he owns it. He's going to be a bit braggadocious about it. Remember the bowl of soup thing? Remember how he's holding that over Esau's head and all of that? I don't buy this divination thing here. Laban knows that Jacob has been the source of his blessing, and he's doing everything he can to keep him around. See, Laban employs his craftiness and puts on this charm to get Jacob to say, it's like he's heard the intercom call, like back in the day in the concerts of like, Laban, the blessing has left the building. Like that's what's happening right now. He knows what's going on, but Laban wants to use Jacob as a means to an end to get a blessing for himself. So, so far in Genesis, we've seen this this theme 
again and again and again. So page one of the Bible, after God has created all things, right? Adam and Eve are in the garden. What do they do? They try to take, they use the fruit of the tree to gain a blessing for themselves. Means to an end. Abraham and Sarah use and abuse Hagar to get a blessing of a child for themselves. And even Jacob himself, after seeing this magnificent vision between him and God, seems to view God as a means to an end to get blessing for himself. But in this effort to entice Jacob to say, both Laban and Jacob are plotting ways to further take advantage of one another. They strike a deal, but it seems that Jacob finally gets the upper hand and tricks his trickster of an uncle. He out-Jacob's Laban. So he does some trickery with the sticks and all of that, and he, at the end, he gets the stronger of the herds. But at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves the question here, what are we supposed to learn? Are we supposed to say like, yeah, you can just trick your way into the blessing, you're going to get it in the end. There must be a question of, well, did that really work? Is that the way the promises of God are actually gained? By trickery? Is that, does that fly? No, not even a little bit. Eventually, Jacob will acknowledge in the next verses ahead that the tricks that he attempts didn't gain him anything. It was God. But we have to ask ourselves the question is, why is Jacob trying to just get another W up in the wind column? Why is Jacob feels this intense need to trick Laban yet again? He's got some dignity now. He's got some respect. Why doesn't he just take his ball and go home? Quite literally. But Many of us in the room, we understand what's going on here. We've been in these shoes before. There's a little bit of us that, and I can feel it myself too, that Laban has, has it coming. Like, Laban deserves this. You know, I don't want to use the karma word because that's not right and that's not biblical, but like, he, he needs to get some. He needs to get some of what he's been dishing out. See, Jacob deserves to make him pay a little bit, right? No. If we get down to reality here, Jacob is repaying evil for evil. He's taking an eye for an eye here. And we need to pause in this moment and say that we get this because we have this internal inclination of our own heart. Do we not? When we are in situations like this, when we finally get the upper hand and we're like in Jacob's shoes, we must respond to what we do with that moment. Do we respond with vengeance? Or do we respond with forgiveness? Because we know the consequences of taking the blessing into our own hands, the terrible consequences of relational fallout, of division, of getting what we want, but always feeling empty on the inside and feeling worse. See, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, fast forward all the way to the New Testament, Paul writes to the Romans in verses, uh, chapter 12, verse 17, and says this, Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it with the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for so by doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is that how Jacob responds here? No. Sadly, no. But God still blesses him anyways. We are reminded again through this story that the blessings of God is by grace. 
and not due to any faithfulness on the part of Jacob as a recipient. In fact, the, the most surprising thing in the story of the Bible so far is that God continues to be faithful to bless his covenant people in the midst of them trying to f- create and obtain that blessing for themselves, to take it into their own hands. See, this story continues on, though, from us just seeing God's continued blessing to Jacob hearing God's call. Let's pick up the story in, at the beginning of Genesis 31. Look at verse 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Now don't miss the significance of what's going on here. Jacob is experiencing blessing. He's experiencing abundance. He's got all this stuff. He's got all his wives. And Laban and his sons now regard him and respond to that with disdain and with envy. Then almost casually, God tells Jacob to you know, go back home. And remember, what's the situation at home like that we had a couple, couple weeks ago? Home, home situation is pretty bad, right? What's going to happen when he shows up? He, Esau's going to kill him. He's already told him. He's just waiting around for Isaac to die so Esau can like go stab him with something and then have all the stuff that Jacob has. So God's saying, hey, get on back home kind of thing. It's got to be pretty bad with Laban for him to actually say that. Let's pick up with Jacob's speech in verse 4. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah, gets his wives involved here, into the field where his flock was and said to him, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me, changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. And if he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore were spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I've seen all that Laban is done doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise. Go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. <laughs> I'll be honest, y'all. I don't really ever want to say the phrase like spotted, mottled, and striped in that order ever again because I've had to say it like 18 times this morning. <laughs> but we need to pick up on what's happening right after this where Rachel and Leah give us a picture of the way that they view their father. Look at this picture of the way that they view their father. This is tragic. Verse 14, Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Continue in verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, and the livestock in his possession that he had acquired for Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan, to his father Isaac, 
Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Uh oh. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. And he fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates. He set his face toward the, the hill country of Gilead. Let's stop there for now. Chapter 31 begins with this complaint from Laban's sons about all of his wealth and that Laban doesn't regard him with favor anymore precisely because of all of that wealth. Now, we've heard this before in the story, so, so far have we not. Someone gains wealth, gains privilege by the blessings of God, like the story between Isaac and Abimelech, where Abimelech says, hey, go away. We're afraid of you now because of how powerful you are. But unlike this, Instead of Laban saying to Jacob, hey, go away, I'm really afraid of you now, Laban, he's just trying to milk this thing for as much as it's worth. He's trying to gain as much blessing as he can from Jacob. He's using him. Laban is dead set on continuing to control Jacob, and the more he gets, the more he wants. Remember back at verse 2 of chapter 31, it says this, and Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. We already know Laban set out to use Jacob to obtain blessing for himself, but this note about Laban not regarding him with favor is a familiar phrase, again, taken from the story of Cain and Abel. Remember the story of Cain and Abel with their sacrifices? And then this phrase pops up that God did not regard the, bless, I mean, the offering of one brother like he did regard the offering of the other brother this short turn of phrase, we can see that in Jacob's eyes, Laban represents a certain type of God, another type of God, a controlling, terrible tyrant of a God that's out to trick him. This type of God who gives you what you want in the moment, but continues to treat you brutally, addicting you to himself in some ways. Ultimately, this type of God, this type of ruler, this type of relationship wants to take and steal everything from you. This is who Laban is. He promises blessing, and instead, he just wants to continue to use. And now that Jacob has power of his own, he has become a threat. And all Laban can do is envy. God allows Jacob to hear what's coming, and God calls him to flee. And as my daddy says, God calls him to get out of Dodge. I've watched enough, like, I grew up on westerns, you know, with all the horses and stuff, the gunfire and stuff. This is the scene where it's like, we got to get out of Dodge, and they're just fleeing. Everybody gets on their, uh, their camels, and then the western movie is all horses and wagons and all that stuff. Petticoats go up, and the women start running. That's what's happening here. Jacob is exodusing out from Laban. Even the crossing of the Euphrates, the, 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 the fleeing from this place will be echoed in Exodus where they cross the Red Sea, going towards the promised land themselves. This is what's happening here. And then we get to this Jacob's conversation with Rachel and Leah. And you know what? We finally get to hear what Jacob's finally thinking of all these things. That, ja that even though Laban's been a dirtbag, he actually acknowledges God as the one who's kept him and blessed him. Jacob reveals that although he did some weird stuff with the sticks, it was God who calls the herds to increase and not Laban's. It was God's protection over him that's actually kept him alive this whole time. And at the end of this conversation, Jacob reveals that God has given them the green light to go back home. Rachel and Leah get a moment to vent their frustration as well. 
and they vocalized the truth that they had been dehumanized into commodities that their father has sold. Let that sink in. Just imagine being a father or being a daughter and regarding your father that way. The dehumanization of your own person into just being sold to get what he wanted that, they, that he has apparently now just squandered. It's time to go. It's time to leave. Everyone agrees, and for one last time, Jacob tricks Laban by not telling him who he was going to leave. But as things would turn out, Laban gets wind of it. Let's pick it up, the story in verse 22. Verse 22. When it was told to Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Pick up on this military language. He's pursuing them like they are his enemy. This is his sons, his daughters, his like his grandchildren, and he's pursuing them like a, this is a military attack. Jacob pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban, his kinsman, pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead, surrounding them. Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you've tricked me, driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? You pick up on the irony here. Did you flee secretly and trick me? Did you not tell me that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs and with tambourine and lyre? Speaking of lyre, Laban's the liar, right? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell, the ones he had sold maybe? Now you've done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. Now we have a threat. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you long greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. I thought you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of your kinsmen, point out now what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Bum, 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 right? This is the, the tensions rising here. We already thought that the, the tension was pretty high. Either being pursued hotly, this is like a military attack. Laban shows up, he's accusing all this stuff, right? And who has the idols? Rachel. What did Jacob just say was going to happen to the person who had the idols? Death. They're going to die. Oh, no. This is like the moments in the game shows where it takes, I don't know if you've ever tracked this before, like put a timer on, on the game shows where it's like they're about to do the big reveal. It's like a solid 30 seconds to a minute of like, who's she going to choose? Who's going to be the next whatever? You know, is they, are they going to love it or list it? You know, we'll find out right after this commercial break. And then like you, you, they do it again, you know, for another three minutes of just building the dramatic tension again and again, right? So instead of this commercial break, let's dive back in, see what happens in verse 33. Laban went into Jacob's tent. Oh no, what's he going to find? Leah's tent, into the tent of the two female service. He did not find them. He went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise for you. But 
but for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but he did not find the household gods. If you don't know what that means, go ask your mama home or whatever. He doesn't find them. Laban, you are the weakest link, right? He didn't find him. That was a close one. But, sorry parents in the room, we got to talk about Rachel. No, no. Ooh, this is weird. I know you're going to thought you're going to get away from Encanto for like maybe an hour on a Sunday morning, but we didn't even make it that far. I'm sorry. 41 minutes in, you're getting it because I know you probably listened to it in the van on the way here. Sorry. Dude, we got to talk about these idols for a second because they represent so much. Um, this sets in, the, in, for the story of the Bible, this pattern of welcoming in, this hiding, this secrecy, this introduction of idolatry into God's people. This is what happens. She takes these idols, she keeps them. Pretty weird what she does. Kind of gross, right? And it's kind of awkward to think about it, but the way of women is upon Rachel. And again, if you don't know what that means, that's on you. Email me later, ryan at veritasfable.com. No, please don't do that to Ryan. But beyond this being pretty gross, uh, the bigger message should show us this. It shows us the utter uselessness, the, uh, the, utter, the utter powerlessness of other gods, other, quote, gods, other idols. Our first introduction into this idolatry that's happening here in the Bible is that these other idols can't even not be used as a menstruation pad. They are worthless. They are powerless. They're not to be trusted. They must be kept in secrecy in such a way that's just horrific and gross. This horrible thing that these household idols are going to make an appearance in in the life of Jacob again and again, and we'll see that time and time again throughout the whole Bible this hard truth that idolatry rightly deserves death. Worship of anything other than Yahweh, God himself, deserves death. But for now, Rachel has taken a page out of her father's book and out of Jacob's book, and she tricks the OG, Laban, her dad, her own father, out of his household gods. The search ends with Laban empty-handed, and then we see Jacob finally get up the nerve to hand Laban a piece of his mind. Let's see if Jacob has a backbone. Ready? Here we go, verses 36 through 42. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you've hotly pursued me? For you've felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. And there's nothing there, right? These 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, have not eaten of the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether it was stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by the heat of the day it consumed me, and the cold of the night my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, 
and rebuke you last night. See, the backbone that Jacob gets here to say these words is it's, it's defending his own character, but it is rooted in what God has ultimately done already to Laban. The rebuke that has already come through God. Jacob openly talks about this, these dishonorable things that Laban's done to him. He defends his own honor over all of these years and all the ways he's been slighted and finally says that if God didn't intervene to provide for him, he would have sent his, away his own daughters without anything, his own grandchildren without anything. And hearing all of this spoken out loud, even in the presence of his kinsmen, you think this does Laban any good? Not a bit, not a bit. Let's see Laban's response in verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. All that you see is mine. Laban's talking like a raving madman here. Absolutely. He cannot see what's right in front of him. He's, in my estimation, an exasperated, empty man who cannot get his way. These daughters aren't his anymore. These flocks aren't his. And some of these grandchildren aren't even his. Like They were literally sons and daughters of other women from the servants. And yet still, after all of this, in God's providence, Laban is the one who suggests the means by which God will provide protection for Jacob and for his family. Let's finish the story in verses 43 through 55. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I. Let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jigar Sathahudalah. And Jacob called it Galid, and Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah. And he said, The Lord watch between you and me. When we are out of one another's sight, if you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap? And the pillar which I've set between you and me, this heap is a witness, this pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap uh, of this, and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father judged between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose, kissed his grandchildren and his daughters, and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So even though Laban is the belligerent, senseless party in this equation, it's his suggestion that Jacob's able to experience peace and protection through the power of this covenant established between the two of them. What providence of God is this? See, Jacob sets up the pillar like the one at Bethel. They say the terms. They evoke the name of God himself as their witness between the two of them. 
And it's very significant, the names of the God used in this covenant, because it tells us about what they thought about this covenant, right? Like the actual power behind uh, evoking God himself to be the witness between these two parties. So imagine with me, right, if I were to make a covenant with my neighbor, and we made a covenant about like the dividing line between our two homes, right? And I said, hey, if I uh, pass over our dividing line between our homes, whatever, if I invade on your territory of your lawn or whatever, uh, then it's going to have this punishment and this consequence. And if he wants to step over my line, which I have no idea what, why he would want to, my yard's a wreck, y'all. Like, it's, it's got pine cones and needles everywhere. You don't, you don't want that. Like, pine needles, not like weird needles. Anyways, <laughs> there we go. We can maybe edit that out in post. Uh, if we wanted to make that covenant, and then we evoke the name of something ridiculous, like Bunker, like the, the, the woodpecker's mascot, to stand as a witness between the two of us, that if we should, we should do this, that should be the consequence, that, that, that covenant wouldn't have any power, right? It'd be absolutely worthless. There's, there's no way that could actually happen. Bunker's not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He can't see. He's not going to know what's going on. He's going to see me sneaking to get my basketball out of my neighbor's backyard, right? He's not going to see me like weed-eating too close to the line. See, this power of this covenant is dependent upon the power by which they evoke here. This God and the names that they swear by is the God of Abraham, but then also this other name, the fear of Isaac, which only appears right here in Genesis 31 in all of the scriptures, this name, the fear of Isaac. Let's look at these names. The name, the God of Abraham, evokes everything we know about God in the story of Abraham so far. It's the story of God so far. He's a creator. He calls, he blesses, he multiplies. He's a relational divine being. And he comes, he communicates directly and meets with Abraham. He, he comes and meets with Jacob. He shows him this divine image. But then this other name, the fear of Isaac. We get this only in Genesis chapter 31. What it does is it helps us realize that in addition to God being a relational divine being who calls, blesses, protects, this God is also a righteous judge who controls life and death. He is to be feared, righteously feared. And it's under the careful watch of this God that Jacob and Laban ate bread, a sign of peace with one another. And then finally, 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 Laban rides off into the sunset, and we never hear from him again in Scripture. So what do we do with a passage like this? Man, that was just a fun, wild ride of a story. Sounds like, kind of like a Western or something, right? There's like no real shootout except with words. No, I think there's three questions we need to ask. One, what do we do? Where do we see the gospel? And how are we called to live in light of it? And with that first question, with a passage like this, I think the simple answer is often overlooked. The point of the scriptures, the point of the whole sum of the Bible is that we would internalize, that we would meditate on the law of the Lord. David says it in the Psalms, that he meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. His Bible, David's Bible, would have been those first five books of the Bible, along with some other writings and stuff. He would have meditated on these stories day and night. And when you do that, as you meditate on the very words of Scripture again and again and again, God begins to reveal things about himself, but also about you, about me, and the way we relate to one another. See, in this story, we see God. He calls, he blesses, he protects. The undeserving Jacob, 
We also saw that God reveals his plan to bless Jacob and rebuke Laban in his pursuit. If this story tells us anything about, the God, about God, is that he's active in his cre- creation. He's real. He's present. He's involved. He's engaged. And we're meant to, to meditate on walking between this tension that God is not only the one who cares for the oppressed like Jacob, but he's the, he's the righteous judge that is to be feared, who controls life and death. He really is the source of love itself. Yet, if we were to stand before God in all of his glory in our sin, we would be utterly obliterated. We're to meditate on that. We're to hold that tension in this story. But we also learn about us. We're like, Jacob, we need a savior. We need a protector. We need a provider. We need a God that sees us in our suffering and in our oppression. We need someone, us, someone to, to rescue us, to silence the voice of the accuser. We need one to stand in our guilty place like Rachel and take the punishment of our death. See, we are like Rachel and these idols, hiding our sin and hiding our shame. Isn't this not what we do with our sin? We hide it. We hide it in a sensitive place and no one else can see, and we wrap it up and make sure that no one else can find it. Laban was the accuser in this story, but even though God knew Rachel's guilt, he protected her from the voice of the one who would condemn her. This is where we see the gospel. The offer that God gives us through the life of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and current rule of everything, is that belief in him Belief in Jesus grants you not only absolution from sin, but freedom from guilt, assurance of God's protection over you, and that when you believe in the work of Jesus for you, the accuser holds no power over you. What did Laban come to do but to accuse Jacob? What did Jacob do but unwittingly accuse his wife? Romans 8 says this, there is Now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The voice of the accuser is silenced in Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, what we think we could do for ourselves like Jacob, weakened by the flesh could not do. We can't do it. But through the sending of his own son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He took the death that Rachel rightly deserved for her sin, for her idolatry, for her shame, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the power of the Spirit. According to the gospel, the good news of the gospel is that fearful Jacobs get assurance of freedom from their accusers in the gospel. Only in the gospel, guilty Rachels get protected by God from the shame of their fathers and oppression for their husbands. And even crafty Labans, they don't get what they deserve either. They get a covenant of peace and promise. See, through the cross, God shows us that this covenant between two deeply flawed men points forward to the new covenant that would be installed and and said through Christ that held up a cup. Like, we're going to go to the table here in a few minutes. He's going to say, this is the new covenant in my blood. 
that Jesus would be the witness and also the sacrifice made in order to establish that covenant between us and God, that we don't get what we deserve. We get life. We get protection. We get blessing. That we who hope in Jesus will be treated by God as righteous, even though we're just as messed up as all the people in this story are. This is the gospel. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So how are we called to live in light of this, church? We who are followers of Jesus here. I'd like to invite you, if you're not a follower of Jesus here, believe this gospel. If you are a follower of Jesus here, believe this gospel. Church, I don't, I don't think I'm alone in this. I've got the attention span of like a golden retriever. I, I need the gospel in front of my eyes as often as I can. I've got to remind myself that I am loved because of Christ. I am accepted because of what Jesus has done. I have peace with God because Jesus has already won it for me. I have peace with others all because of Jesus and not because of what I've done or I'm going to do. It's a free gift of grace every single day. And also, when I do that, when I fix my eyes on Jesus, when I realize this new covenant has been made between me and God, it gets me up off my idols as I get my eyes up on Jesus. I'm free to say, man, here is my guilt. Here is my shame. Here is my idolatry. Here is the thing that I am just absolutely wallowing in shame over because here's the glorious beauty of the gospel. That doesn't define me anymore. It doesn't define you anymore. As we get our eyes up on Jesus, because Church, hear me. All idols, however small, will lead to death. They will. They'll entice you, kind of like Laban did with Jacob. I've got this thing you want. I've got this daughter named Rachel. You can have her. Give me seven years. What, what, okay, I, you didn't get what you really wanted, but you got one of them. Give me seven more years of your life. Oh, you want some flocks? You want some herds? How about six more years? This, this, this is what idolatry does for us. We think we're getting what we want, but we're getting more and more enslaved. More and more enslaved to whatever that thing is until we're sucked of all life. But through the good news of the gospel, through Jesus, we now realize that putting anything up on a pedestal where only God belongs will lead to death. But through Jesus, we get to view those things rightly. We get to see our kids as not objects of, to be worshipped, but good gifts to be enjoyed by God. We get to see our spouse and the relationships that we have with other friends as not things to be worshipped or things to be envied over. We don't have to have frenemies. We can have real friends and be happy for other people because of what Jesus has done. I can be satisfied. I can be filled with hope because God has me right where he wants me. He is sovereign over my life and I am not. We don't have to worship ourselves because we know we make really terrible gods just like Laban. See, our idols rightly understood will reveal to us the deeper longing in our hearts to be met in Jesus. That he provides the strength and protection that no other can deliver on. That Jesus gives peace that no drug or ritual can synthesize for you. Jesus grants us not only forgiveness for our sins, but the way forward to forgive others. Because God has granted us to live by the power of his spirit. Church, believe the gospel. 
Get honest about your idols. Get your eyes up on Jesus and live by the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are good. You alone are good. This story should point us and remind us of the fact that, God, we, we are not the righteous party here. We are filled with our own idolatry. We are filled with our own hurt. We're filled with our own pain and things that separate us from you, God. And we rightly deserve death, but the good news of the gospel that we're going to see exemplified in baptism is that Jesus, though you died the death that we deserve for sin, you were resurrected to a new life. And that we who believe in you get to experience that new resurrection life, having been dead to our trespasses and sins and brought to new life as a gift of grace. Not because of anything that we've done, but all because of what you've done, Lord Jesus. God, help us see the beauty of that gospel. Get our eyes up on you, Jesus, and see you high and lifted up, not only um, on this day, this Lord's Day, as we gather together like this, but all throughout this week, that day by day we'd be met with that good news and see you as our provider, who calls, who blesses, who protects. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen.